Hello, welcome to uh, Digital LSE. Um, whatever time of day it is, wherever in the world you are, um, you're very welcome to this um, LSE Marshall Institute uh, event on the Double X Economy. Um, we're here for uh, an hour, and um, uh, uh, our distinguished speaker, Linda Scott, will speak for 10 or 15 minutes. I'll ask her a few questions, and then we will take your questions. Um, give us your questions through the Q&A function, which you can see. You should know that this is also being live streamed um, uh, on uh, Facebook and um, welcome. So um, I don't know how many of you already know this book. Um, if you don't, um, you should. You'll get to know it a little bit better in the next um, hour, but I strongly recommend uh, that you get to grips with it. This is um, uh, super important and still, I think, even now, uh, quite shocking uh, material. Um, Linda's book wins the prize for the best epigraph I've seen in a published work in the last couple of years. Um, uh, she uses Gloria Steinem's adaptation of the Gospel of St. John, and the epigraph is, the truth will set you free uh, but first, it will piss you off. Um, and that sets up rather nicely, I think, um, uh, her work on the double X economy. I won't, I won't um, rehearse all the ways in which uh, the world is uh, structured um, unfairly, um, but uh, I'm sure Linda will give us some of the data to, to uh, uh, illustrate that. Um, Linda, welcome. Uh, it's very good to see you. Um, uh, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on the book. Um, uh, if I may, I'd like simply to ask you to uh, talk to us a little bit about the double X economy, talk a little bit about how you see that uh, both as, a, as an act of analysis or a set of insights and a call to action. So, so both analysis and uh, movement. And then you and I will have a brief conversation, which I'll ask you uh, some questions, and then we'll open it up to the floor. So welcome, welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, and it's good to see you again, Stefan. Good to see you. Um, yes, um, so let, yes, it's, I think it's helpful if I start with the idea of what the double X economy is, and that is easiest for me to explain, I think, by telling the narrative of how I came to it. Um, when I first moved to Oxford in 2006, I had just published a book that was a history of the rise of the modern economy and the rise of the American feminist movement. And what I wanted to do was to see whether some of the um, important um, enabling factors uh, for women's economic participation could be replicated in uh, impoverished areas uh, and have the same positive effect today. Because what I had found was contrary to conventional wisdom that these two things had enabled each other, uh, economic participation and the rise of a, of a women's rights movement. Um, and I started out by doing work in the very remote areas of developing uh, economies among the very poorest and most marginalized women. And, and by the way, I'm still doing that kind of work today. Um, and what I found there, I was, I was really surprised to see were um, constraints uh, that held women back um, in many different cultural ways, but also kept them from um, uh, participating in the economy, and that these were very similar to the constraints I had seen in early America, uh, early American history, and also what I had done of European and particularly British history. 
Um, at the same time, you know, I was working at the Said School uh, at Oxford, and I was doing both work uh, among MBA students, but also executive women. And I was finding that vestiges of the same constraints were still affecting them in the here and now. Uh, at the same time, when I was working beginning about 2006, we began to have um, data incoming from um, uh, international institutions um, that pulled together uh, gender measures that were being collected by international agencies and national governments and uh, people like that. And these were showing <clears throat> something that also one might not have expected. And that was that there was a consistent pattern of economic inequality and other inequalities uh, for women that was the same in every nation to a lesser or greater degree, um, but it was definitely the same. And that these appeared to come as it emerged, appeared to come from a consistent set of, of economic constraints. And this, you know, it flew in the face of conventional wisdom because we've all be, always been taught to think of gender as a cultural specific thing. And so it should not have been consistent. It should have been varied and you should have had some societies in which there was gender equality, but there wasn't. Um, and uh, the other thing that was interesting about this was when groups like the World Economic Forum would arrange um, a list of nations from the most gender equal to the least gender equal, what you saw was just an, a, a pattern that was visible to, immediately to the naked eye. And that was that at the top you had um, stable health, stable countries, politically stable countries that were well-to-do, had um, healthy, uh, healthy populace because they had access to healthcare and equal access to education. And then all the way down to the most gender unequal societies that had fragile governments, were racked with conflict, were very poor, had disease issues and uneducated population. Um, and at first, um, what people said was, oh, um, this, um, this must be because the, um, the rich nations had the luxury of setting their women free. And the poor nations have to keep uh, male dominance in order to survive. Well, over time, uh, as people worked um, to try to get a better, you know, more uh, causal explanations for this pattern, uh, that started to break down. And I think it's useful um, to show at this point, if you guys would, the first slide that shows um, the um, GDP and women's economic empowerment. Okay, so what you have on the left axis here, the vertical axis is uh, GDP per capita. This is 102 countries. On the horizontal axis, what you have is the economist estimate of uh, a women's economic empowerment index. And as you can see, the dots, the red dots are the correlations between those two measures for all those countries. And they go upward, very pronounced, upward and to the right. And so what that shows us is there is at least a strong positive correlation between women's economic empowerment and GDP. So uh, you can take that down now if you like, please. Um, so the question becomes, uh, what is the causality and in, in which direction does it go? And like I said, at first it was thought that, you know, uh, growth caused gender equality kind of thing. And over time it became much clearer that as counterintuitive as it might be, in fact, it was, it was not that the rich nations could afford to set their women free, it was that setting their women free had made them rich. And um, it, is a, it has been a very interesting journey to with, and there's very much a community of people who work on this. I'm not, 
I was almost alone in the beginning, but I'm not alone anymore. And, um, and they, they have um, been able to see that if they lift some of those constraints, uh, it, it has a lot of good impact uh, on a national level. Uh, in particular, it raises GDP, makes the nation more prosperous, but it also reduces um, costs that uh, like domestic violence that in turn produce um, a lot of really tragic human suffering. So there's a tremendous amount to be gained worldwide by lifting these constraints. And at this point, they're pretty discreet and identifiable. Um, so let me show you an example of this. There's one graph that I have. Um, would you guys put up the one about land holding, please? Shows you what this looks like and, and why it's global and why it's structural. Now, what you have here is you have, um, no, the next one, but yeah, there you go. What you have here is on the left is the percent of individuals holding land in uh, 100 and I think it's, uh, yeah, 106 countries. This is developed and developing nations. The black dots across the top are the percentage of males who are holding land and the percentage of females are the red dots along the bottom. Now you can see at first glance that this is hardly a random pattern. And in digging at it a little bit, what I found out was that there had been a worldwide exclusion a, literally a worldwide exclusion from of women being prohibited from owning land. And that it in fact goes back to at least the very first laws that we have a permanent record of, the uh, Code of Urnamu, which is about 2000 BCE. And that it had continued in uh, developed and developing countries until fairly recently. Um, for uh, prohibitions against property rights are still very much in place in the developing world, but they've only been released in the developed world in the last uh, 75 to 150 years. So, uh, and these things have very uh, long uh, roots and they are very intransigent to change because of course land has been the main store of capital in world history. And it's now has rolled up into an advantage where men not only own more than 80% of the world's land, but also about 80% of the world's capital. Um, so it, it is something that then comes right down to even in, uh, for example, high-tech entrepreneurship in the United Kingdom, uh, the lack of control and access to capital that women entrepreneurs have as opposed to male entrepreneurs is a very long-standing vestige of this particular pattern. Um, at the, at the, um, for agricultural economies, the impact of this is, is, is quite a lot more sinister. Um, uh, we can take that slide down, please. Um, because it means that women have less access to capital there, which means they have less access to uh, agricultural equipment and inputs of various sorts. And what that does is to reduce their yield. Um, and um, studies have shown that if that if that was um, if that particular thing playing field were leveled, um, they would uh, produce uh, output equal to men's, and for an agricultural economy, it would raise GDP by three to four percent. In turn, what this does also is it reduces the amount of food production, and this is particularly agricultural economies tend to be poorer and more fragile nations. So it also produces it also produces food insecurity, which in turn, among other things, leads to conflict. At the household level, it produces some fairly significant suffering. Uh, it means that women, by and large, are dependent on men for very basic necessities, um, particularly food, and and also domestic violence because they are simply trapped. They have no other alternative. Um, they're essentially enslaved by this. 
And uh, it produces, so it, um, studies have shown now that where women own land, domestic violence is less and child, bear, where, child well-being is greater. Um, but it also means that women are systematically fed less around the world, so much so that people are devising right now a gender nutrition index because they think that it's visible at the species level. Um, we can see it, uh, global studies have also shown it contributes to low birth rates in those birth weights in those countries, which in turn uh, causes birth defects and disease. Uh, then the, the feeding behavior, uh, feeding females less starts immediately. Um, females are both fed less than, and they're also given less health care. So what you see is stunting and uh, uh, inadequate cognitive development that results uh, as as um, you know, an outgrowth of this. So the point of this is this is not a matter, it's not random, it's not a matter of choice, it's not a matter of inadequacies on the part of women. Uh, it's a matter of, it's a structural problem and it's really old, really old. And that means it's much older than either capitalism or socialism. I often say that capitalism and socialism is, they are both just recent plugins uh, to patriarchy. Uh, and that this is older, we now know, than even written history, because the roots of it show up, the, the food part shows up in archaeological digs and among hunter-gatherer groups. Um, <clears throat> this expands because women also were not then allowed to control any money that they earned. And this also comes right through to the present moment. So if they couldn't own assets and they couldn't uh, hold earnings, uh, they were also they also could not store anything that they owned in part because they were also from the very beginning excluded from the financial system. So we see the vestiges of that today in terms of um, women in develop developing economies no, still not able to hold um, bank accounts. And again, all the way to raising investment money in uh, the developing countries. And essentially, again, it keeps them dependent. Um, this also, the whole thing rolls up into a total system that is, is really seamless. It, it, it ultimately is so overlapping that there's no escaping it. And it leads to a pervasive attitude that women should not want money or wealth and that they should have less generally. And it pervades then the whole economic system. And so that last graph, if you would show it, please. Uh, this is a graph of wage inequality for similar work that is um, collected by the uh, World uh, Economic Forum. And I use it because it can't be manipulated. Um, and there is a meme out there that says, no, 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 the one with the bars going straight up and down, the uh, one I haven't, yeah, there you go. Now, what we have here is, uh, is essentially a wage of the percentage of pay that women get customarily in these countries. And so 100, the black box across, uh, black line across the top is equality with men. It's 132 countries. And what you see here is that there is no country in the world or no country for which we have data where women are customarily paid the same as men. So what I say is that this reflects not only a pervasive attitude, but also the overall inequality uh, an intransigent inequality, intractable inequality that we see uh, across the economy. Uh, this cannot be legitimately justified by statistical uh, explanations, and we can discuss that uh, in the Q&A, or, or Stefan and I could talk about it. In any case, as Stefan says, the important part about the book, though, is that we now know that when these constraints are released, the bad stuff goes with them. And that more equality, oh, you can put down this light, 
slide now, sorry. Um, basically what more equality means for humanity is more prosperity and less suffering in a really major way. Because like I said, these things ripple out to things like hunger and conflict and trafficking. The, the damage is massive. It's not in any way trivial. Um, and uh, any initial cost for playing the field, uh, leveling the playing field are paid back and it doesn't punish the men. Uh, it has a massive impact in part because this is half the, half the species we're talking about. If all the women in the world sat down at one time, you would feel it, okay? This is not a trivial matter. And ultimately, it's the best thing we can do for ourselves. So yes, the book is intended mainly as a recruitment document. Uh, it's a brochure. It says, call to action and please join us. And uh, so that's the introduction. Thank you so much. Um, there's so much there to talk about that I almost don't know where to begin. Uh, but I'm going to, I mean, you make such a compelling case for the, for the, as it were, utility of gender equity, as well as, as it were, the, the moral imperative um, uh, of, of gender equity. And, and I, can't, I can't really resist asking, asking, you know, given how distributed we are, given that this is a digital meeting, asking a little bit about where you think COVID might uh, affect this movement, this coalition that you're building of, as it were, policy and analysis and, and action um, uh, for equity. It, are you worried that um, that will set this movement back as people race to restore the principles that have given rise precisely to the analysis you're making. Right. Yes, I'm, I'm very concerned about it. And, uh, and again, I'm not alone on this. Uh, very early in the pandemic, the United Nations um, issued a very urgent warning that uh, women were about to lose 50 years of progress. Um, and it's now been reiterated by the World Economic Forum and, and, and many other international institutions. Unfortunately, it's not getting much attention at the level of national governments. Um, and um, this is very worrisome, but it does reflect some of the problems that I outline in the book that the movement is having getting the attention of world leaders who tend to kind of assume, as do traditional economists, that the women's impact on the economy and the impact of the economy on women and families is, is minimal, is trivial. So um, in the first place, let me just say that women contribute such a large amount to global GDP at this point that there is no recovering from this pandemic economically unless women become part of the package. Uh, I know the number in the US is 40%. I think in the UK, it's probably about 37% of GDP that is produced just by working women. This is not even by business ownership or any other way. Um, and so it just doesn't make sense to make an economic recovery plan and not attend to such a large chunk of GDP and such a clear segment of the economy that can be solved in very specific ways. The other part of it, and the part that is more worrisome, oh, I should say also, it's recessions do typically hit one part of the economy or another, and it is usually men who get hit first. In this case, because of the contagion aspect of it, and because women are clustered all over the world, they're clustered in the same industries, and they tend to have face-to-face uh, -face contact involved. Um, for that reason, the contagion meant the women got hit first, and they will recover last. Uh, so that's the next part that we're seeing. It kind of it kind of proves out my contention that this is a global phenomenon because we see it happening right now. The other thing is the and the most concerning thing is what's happening with childcare. 
um, the governments of the world, particularly the Western nations, um, adopted policies about childcare in the 70s that were really reactionary, uh, really designed to keep women at home. And keeping women at home, as I've said, is a very is a disaster for them and also bad for the society. It keeps them dependent. It makes them dependent. But there's a small, first of all, they just didn't ever change those. So they're stuck with it now. They never stepped up to their, I think, their responsibility to do something about childcare. And uh, so it's fallen to women. And it is not, again, it's not a choice. This is involuntary. They're being forced back. And um, it, the longer it goes on, the more likely it is that we're seeing women just leave the economy permanently now. Um, that that will it will in fact roll us back, and that's very scary. It's very dangerous for women, and like I said, it's really bad for everybody. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's possible it will turn around, uh, but it will depend a lot on what the men do. Why why do you think there's such a reluctance to name certain f- kinds of risk or certain kinds of uh, injustice um, as gendered. Why, why do you think? Why is it so rare that, aside from policies that are explicitly directed at girls and women, so it were policies that that, are, that affect the planet or humanity or whole economies or or ownership distribution or innovation or any of those things are never named as gendered uh, questions? Why do you think that is? Um, it's a really good point. I've been really struggling with this a lot lately. Um, uh, I'm writing a piece for USA right now specifically to be used to try to persuade the more intransigent people, um, in, you know, among economists and policymakers who just, they really just don't want to look at this. And there are a couple of reasons. I think one of them is ideological. Um, one of them is more uh, psychological, actually, and it's important to note it. Um, the ideological part is that our economists still are working under a, you know, as sophisticated as it may have been, it's all predicated on the notion that that the economy is objectively structured by um, all the people in it going after their own self-interest with full information and free choice. And one of the things I point out, yeah, none of which, none of those premises apply to women. Okay, so that means that the theory has always been fundamentally flawed because it cannot explain more than half the population, 51%. Um, nevertheless, economists, I find, get very angry when you, when you try to question that basic premise, and they really don't like the gender thing in particular. And I think that's because they've been taught that this is not only, you know, disproven by their theory, but is harmful to their prestige even to talk about it. And I think also that economic departments uh, and economic groups around the world are just almost 100, I mean, theory, it's the highest male dominant group in any place in the academy or in policy or economists. And so that tends to perpetuate it. So that's, that's one reason. Though, though to be to be fair, we should point out that you you don't pull your punches in for other disciplines. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things about your book is the extent to which you draw out uh, complicity in anthropology, in management studies, in finance. There's quite a lot of, as it were, institutional wisdom um, that that you think is lining up to perpetuate some of these inequities. Yes, it's, it's absolutely true. Now, one thing I will say, though, and I do try to point this out, and I, I wish I could somehow communicate the magnitude of this, but starting in the 70s, women started going into the academy and were not there before. 
So they got engaged in knowledge production. And in many, even in the sciences, started to ask just a simple question, well, what about the women? Because basically the women had not been studied across the whole of all of these disciplines. And some of the disciplines, like for this wide, uh, anthropology is one and social, social biology is one, which used to be one of the worst, okay, as far as, you know, male dominance in ideology. But, but what's happened is that literally what we know has been grown and enriched unexpanded by that. But there are still groups, still disciplines who still won't. Now, what I've done in the book is to explain how, for example, anthropology in particular really perpetuated this blindness for a long time and until very recently. But economics is probably the last frontier, uh, probably the last frontier. Um, If I may, the other reason that I think this resistance happens is really important, I think, for uh, any viewers to know, and I really try to emphasize this every time I give a talk. It's really important to understand that in the Western countries, the men overwhelmingly support gender equality. Okay, that that surveys all all the studies depend, you know, it depends what the number is, depends on how you ask the question. But I'm talking 75, even as I've seen as high as 98% of men are on board and will say answer questions positively with you that sense things, is there more to be done? They say yes. Do you need to do something about it too? They say yes. Will you reach it without male uh, support? No. And um, and so it's it's a very strong thing. This is a sea change, a massive sea change in the last 50 years. Uh, but it's still a taboo subject. And one of the things, as you know, that I try to argue in the book, it's because there remains about 25% of men all across these countries who are super, super distressed when you bring this up and that they tend to occupy positions where they can affect the behavior of other men. And so there's a group dynamic that becomes like you're somehow betraying manhood or saying, showing yourself not to be a real man. If you stand up in one of these situations where it's mostly all men anyway, right. And say, I really think we should promote this women instead of this man. You, you really, you're risking the disapproval of the decision-making group, but also backlash from, whatever group the woman is in. So it means, and, and I think most women have seen this, there's some men you can bring up gender equality to them and they just go into rage. I mean, even if they don't scream and yell, their face gets enraged. I mean, it's a very noticeable phenomenon. And I think men and women both try to avoid it uh, by not talking about it. And I think that's a very important point. Uh, I do also think that world leaders tend to be real Macho. Unfortunately, especially at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say, and I have Trump in mind at the moment. Yes, yes, that very toxic sort of masculinity. So look, there's a hundred questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you my last question, then I'm going to start going through the questions that are coming in uh, there, uh, right. in very high volume in the Q and A. And okay. the number that's that leapt out at me from the book was relates to agriculture. I know you're interested in investment policy making and leadership and so on. But the number that was really striking, if I remember correctly, is that something like half of food production is in the hands of women. Okay, And given the SDGs, given food insecurity, given all of those, given the climate impact on food, I wonder whether you think there's an outsized lever there 
to address some of the uh, some of the potential that you describe, specifically in food and agriculture. Right. Um, and as you know, a lot of my work has been in agricultural economies, and I didn't intend ever to get really any kind of expertise in agricultural, but because the women I was working with were in agricultural economies, that's that it did come up very much. Um, to give some magnitude, estimate the magnitude of that lever that you're talking about, the United Nations estimates that if we could equalize women in that part of the economy, we would feed 150 million of the world's chronically hungry. So that's that's how big it is. There is another issue, though, however, and this may also be what you're pointing to, the fact that women produce so much of food and they're going to produce more in the future in the sense of not more food, but a greater and greater percentage. Uh, it's called the feminization of agriculture. It's because men move, are moving to cities and taking non-agricultural work and leaving women behind to do the farming. And yet they still suffer from these inequalities that keep them from maximizing their output. Uh, and there are several crops around the world that are already in danger. And I will alarm the viewers by telling you that two of them are coffee and chocolate. <laughs> that, that may be a problem. Bananas and cashews are also a problem. And I've been working um, for a long time with um, a group of corporations that some of which either depend on agricultural products for ingredients or they sell them at retail. And these big companies, multinational companies, have been working for a long time on this gender inequality thing to a large degree because they see major crops that they need in jeopardy and they're trying to reverse that. So yeah, it would it, it's something that would have a massive impact. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to move us now to questions that are coming in thick and fast, and I'm going to try, perhaps incompetently, to group them around certain certain themes. And uh, one of the most noticeable threads in the Q and A um, is around um, policy interventions. And they range from uh, questions about, you know, if there's if there was one thing that you would fix at a policy level, what would it be through to through to what is a kind of bundle of policy approaches? I wonder if you could if you could uh, address those questions. Sure. Yeah, Um, actually, um, I would have said this even before the pandemic, but I'm going to say it even more with more emphasis now. And that is, I think, the number one thing. And I don't think there'd be much disagreement about this among people who are working with me. The number one thing that you can do to solve this problem or to ameliorate it is to institute universal, affordable, high-quality childcare, uh, particularly at the zero to, not pre-K, but before that, uh, zero to three or four. Um, this is the number one thing that holds women uh, not only out of the workforce, but keeps them from starting businesses and growing businesses. Um, it's a time poverty thing. And um, so that would be the number one thing. And, and, and I would want to do that by repositioning. We, I think our world leaders still think of, certainly over here, world leaders think about um, childcare as like a luxury handout for women who ought to be at home doing their job anyway, right? And we need to think about it instead as economic infrastructure, the same as building an airport or a road system. Uh, because it is necessary to keeping our economies going now because women have become too important to the economy. But it's also important for the investment in human capital. What we know about now about infant development, for example, really does call for this. That'd be the first thing. Um, 
this is going to be a little bit harder for people in the West to understand. But the second thing I would want to emphasize is making it possible for women in developing countries to choose their own mates, their own husbands. Uh, that as, as weird as that may sound, the rollout from that, the ripple effect is extremely negative from uh, fathers choosing husbands. You know that I was intrigued by, uh, towards the back of the book, you have a whole series of, as it were, kind of proposed interventions, one of which was uh, about um, uh, getting rid of, as it were, the, the incent- compulsory mediation. Yeah. And I was really struck by that because it was it seemed a completely startling and, and surprising thing to suggest. Could you could you just I mean, I'm abusing my position in the chair to ask you another question. I'm smuggling in another question. Why? Why is compulsory mediation a bad idea for women? OK, so what happens? Um, and I don't know that they do this in the UK yet. Um, I have not read anything. It's not, about it's that. not compulsory. It's not compulsory, but you're supposed to. Okay, so in the U.S., anyway, they call them forced arbitration. Yeah, compulsory mediation. And what you sign at the time of your employment is that no matter what happens to you, uh, no matter how badly you may be treated, um, you will submit to arbitration. And we know that when that, rather than suing, and whether, you know, and suing, I must say, is a lot more effective in the United States It has some than it is in England. It has some also some burdens that have been imposed on it by the courts that makes it less effective now. But it is a significant threat to a company. And so um, so you sign away um, that we know that mediation usually favors the em- uh, employer. And so you're not likely to win that one. And um, and also you have to sign away your right to a class entered suit. And in the, they don't even have that in the UK, but in the US, <clears throat> that allows a group of women to pool their resources and sue as a class. And that makes it more economically feasible and rational to file suit. Well, these two things are very important to the enforcement of employment rights for all groups in the in the U.S. and including the men. This the men are also made to sign these things. And the reason I call it a women's issue is just because I think women have more points at which they can meet discrimination than the other groups have. And I would say also that these provisions have been more important to the gains women have made over the last fifty years. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's and it's crazy. It's just it's crazy. It now in the U.S. it affects almost half. What it's forty percent of the labor forces under this contract, and yet this kind of contract, and yet the media is still always whenever it comes up, they say this arcane issue. This is not an arcane issue. This is a day to day bread and butter issue. How yeah. interesting. Okay, so that, I I'm grateful to you. Thank you. So there's a thread of questions which. Um, Conchita, Legabura, Sarah, and others are asking questions about whether, uh, about as it were, the global north and the global south, or the more or the less um, uh, economically developed uh, world, and whether there are distinctions um, in your analysis between those b- b- between them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I do I do have in the book some chapters where I just work on developed countries and I try as much as possible to weave them together. For example, in the chapter on work, I do the U.S. and Bangladesh, trying to show that although it appears they're not the same, they are very, very similar. If you look at the progression in history, okay, so it's not really a matter of one being better than the other. It's a matter of where they are kind of on the wheel of time. And, um, and I think that, um, 
it's it's just it's just inaccurate at this point to consider that that any of these countries are fundamentally different. Uh, they're just in different places, um, and it's also important to understand that in history, when women have won rights, and they have in the past, and in some cases maintain them for long periods of time, hundreds of years, that um, that every time the gains have been temporary. And it's usually some kind of regime change that causes it. So, I mean, frankly, you can see that the Trump thing could very easily overturn women's rights just in a heartbeat. And um, and this is the kind of thing that happens. And I and so you can't assume again that there's some intrinsic difference between what's going on in these two countries. Uh, one of the examples the book is about to go into Poland, and so I had to write, or I was asked to write a chapter specifically on Poland. And I tell you, I wrote it right before Christmas, and I was depressed all the way through Christmas. What's happening in Poland right now is a case study of how bad and how quickly this can happen. Um, you have, You're referring to the abortion regulation as well. Yes, um, but what I argue in this chapter is that that's just kind of the lightning rod for the rest of it. Um, I think that the people who are proposing that know that that's an issue that a lot of people will be drawn to because most people have a little discomfort with it. Um, but it is it is just, there are a whole lot of other things that go with that. And a lot of it is pulling women out of the workforce. Uh, and a lot of it you have to remember is that there's also an anti-contraception thing going on here as well. And frankly, that the big player in Poland is not really the government. The government is complicit, but the big player is the church. And um, and I know certainly in this country it's unpopular to point this out, but the Catholic Church uh, has a history, a long ago history, of insinuating itself into governments and just trying to do this kind of thing. And our economic theories do not take into account the potential for a third party uh, like that to get involved and to be able to have that kind of an effect. So it, it's very important to realize this can happen. I often point to the Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale, if you've read it, is that's a that's a realistic option. That that could happen. Amy Katecha has a has a linked question, though I think suggesting the opposite direction, which is whether, given the importance of childcare, whether there's any evidence or data suggesting that countries with very low birth rates, where where the demo where the demographic trend is different, whether that plays through in any of this double X economy analysis. Right. Um, well, as you know, there's a chapter actually in the book that's called Punishing Motherhood. And it's about, on the one hand, countries that have very high birth rates and uh, fertility rates, and on the other, the ones that have very low. And that people need to realize that at this point, there's really a bipolar thing and that, and that about half the world has the one problem, about half the world has the other problem. And, and it is the higher income countries and it is the countries that have more gender equality or growing gender equality that have this problem. And the way most people explain this, and I think this is quite accurate, is that it is the failure, like I referenced earlier uh, in the talk, uh, it is in our discussion, um, it's the failure of those governments to deal with childcare and the continued hostility of the culture toward working mothers. And um, and so what happens, and, and also the rising cost of living. So so what you find is that in those countries, increasingly, uh, parents can't afford to have children unless both parents work. And yet there is so much hostility and punishment of working mothers, we call it the motherhood penalty, and it has a name, uh, that they have to make a choice and what they choose is not to have children. Um, and this is bad. A low birth rate is really, a low fertility rate is bad. 
Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to be arguing for women as breeders. I certainly am not. But um, I also know a lot of young women in my life um, who really would like to have children, but are afraid basically to have children. And they're putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And it is true that eventually you do reduce your chances of being able to conceive. So, um, yeah, it's tragic. It's tragic. So there's a question from Harry Poole, um, which I haven't thought about really, which is whether 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 you're optimistic or positive about the influence of machine learning, AI, artificial intelligence on the way um, labor is is gendered and um, uh, the economic empowerment of women, whether you think that might level down, level up, exacerbate. Yeah. Okay. So I saw a terrific but very disturbing um, presentation at Pricewaterhouse PwC in London about a year and a half ago that was showing how gender bias was showing up in AI. Um, And it was terrifying the way the stereotypes were being played out. And you have to think about the fact that AI basically grows out of our own patterns of thought and our own practices. And so it's going to replicate. And I would argue just as markets do, markets do the same thing. It's going to replicate all those social inequities because uh, it was, I mean, this thing showed all kinds of videos and stuff of both race and gender just being to a degree that was just shocking. So I don't think so. I do think that um, one of the things the pandemic has done uh, has has foregrounded some of these issues, whether or not work uh, was going to be restructured and then how how that would happen. And also um, uh, automation of um, uh, machinery in factories in production uh, what I, I mentioned that in, Bang- in Bangladesh, one of the case studies is that um, there's still a myth that um, the women can't operate the machines because they're heavy, all right, and hard, right? When in fact they're all push button. Um, and so, you know, the inequities are being um, replicated by the just common beliefs and general baloney, you know. Um, someone asks a uh, someone asks a question about the economist Vicky Price, who I think reviewed your book. Actually, I can't remember where she reviewed it, but she, somewhere I saw that she had reviewed your book. Yeah. And in her book, I think Women versus Capitalism, she essentially argues that it, this is a government. This is a this is a government level regulatory challenge. This is not an individual action problem. It's not an advocacy problem. It's a it's a government problem. Where where do you stand on that on that on her uh, analysis? Yeah, you know it's interesting. She did review the book, and it was in the Times Literary Supplement. And then, or actually, be- even before then, I think uh, she interviewed me in a similar setup like this at, for the RSA, and that was very early on. And we just immediately hit it off because yeah, we we see it the same way pretty much. And I do think it's really important. I think that for years there's been a tendency to blame employers for this, to blame the private sector. And I think that the government, particularly in Britain, is kind of passing the buck and continuing that by this business of um, transparency on equal pay. I think it's a good thing, but I think that they're saying, well, we're going to use this to shame out employers and they're going to change, when in fact they're not going to change. And the reason is that the government does not enforce those laws. And the government and many of the things that we're talking about as reforms would have to be done by the government. They cannot be done by employers. 
to some degree because it would not be legal in the UK for the employers to do what needs to be done. Um, and I think that uh, there are several things like, for example, uh, talking in the book about the whole doctrine of positive discrimination that has to be changed by the government. Um, yeah, it's a government problem. And, 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 and the universal childcare, by that I mean government childcare. And people want the private sector to do that. And that's not a good idea. It's not a good idea for them. It's not a good idea for parents and children either. Um, I know you've thought a lot about kind of entrepreneurship and innovation and kind of risk capital as it relates to some of these questions. And there's a there's a question uh, in the thread from Ellen Thomas about microfinance, which which you and I both know has was was as it were, founded on the notion that it was that it was um, gender redistributive, as it were, in terms of access to financial services. Do you do you think that that has been positive, negative? Well, we don't know yet. I think in some ways it's been positive, and in some ways we don't know yet. I think that um, that I think it's fairly clear at this point, and based on the projects I've been seeing and been involved with, I, I think this is um, reasonable to characterize this consensus that the women's groups that were part from the beginning of the microfinance uh, revolution uh, that made the decisions and took out the loans collectively <coughs> were a very good innovation, that that has practical applications um, in, uh, elsewhere that they need that uh, same-sex environment, they need the solidarity, they need the privacy, and all of these things have good effect not only on them financially, but on the community and how the money is spent. Um, so I think that was an important learning that people probably didn't expect that the that the structure through which microfinance was delivered was actually better. Um, yeah. I think another thing that's important to understand is that women in many of these countries did not have access to credit at all before this. And so one of the innovations was just opening that up. And we now know as a, uh, from all the practice that's gone on yeah. is that just opening up access to credit has positive implications. Now, as I outlined in the book, there's still some, some big problems that I see is that they've always had, uh, microfinance has always had um, interest rates that are much too high for the women to sustain. Uh, I think they're usurious. Um, that's one thing. The other is that when you're in a, a, a really, really disadvantaged setting, a, a lot of times the women are not numerate or literate, and um, they can't understand it well enough, um, and they get into a bad uh, situation with the debt. And so some control needs to be put on that. Um, the last thing I would argue is that many economists, and I can't even believe this when people say this to me, when you say, well, you know, women don't have access to credit so that they can grow their businesses, they don't have access to investment. People will say, well, they have microcredit. And as you would know from the position of LSE and, and all the background you have in entrepreneurship, that microcredit is just not gonna get it if you're trying to start a tech firm, okay? Microcredit is like a couple hundred bucks. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing that some people think, oh, well, that's dealt with because we gave them these shreds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons it's so hard to adjudicate microfinance is because it is many things. You know, it's a spectrum from from micro credit to through to quite to institutional uh, capital. And um, there's there's a there's a there's a rather moving. Um, it's a remark rather than a question from Karen. I think her name is Ray, but it may be Raya, um, in which she says that as recently as 1961 her mother was not able legally to own the family home 
without, I think, her father being a co-signatory. Um, and that's a rather that's a rather moving intervention. But it, and it prompts me to wonder whether you think that you know it's it's great how far we've come, or it's shocking um, how far we have to go. You know, that's 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 the, uh, I was one year old in 1961. So, and you could argue this two ways. You could say, isn't it amazing? You know how how far we've come, or isn't it astonishing um, how far we have yet to go? Where where are you on that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I talk about Dame uh, Stephanie Shirley in the book, uh, who also was not able to open a bank account for her business, which of course was ultimately multi multi billion dollars, right, or whatever that that she um, multi million dollars at that time. Uh, she had to take her husband in with her just to open the bank account. And I often use those as a way of, in, 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 it's not so much how far we have to go or how far we've been as it is the recency. I use it mostly to emphasize the recency of these restrictions that you were one year old and I hate to admit this, but I was 11 in 19, no, it was, no, it was nine in 1951. So it's in living memory. And as, as, as much as people say, oh, she's an old woman, from a historical perspective, the fact that something is in living memory makes it really recent. And that also makes it really fragile. Um, and um, so I use it mostly to say, here's how recent it has been that we were in the same position that we're seeing in rural Africa right now. Yeah, amazing. Um, GDP has, comes up quite often in this, in this Thread and as you know very well, GDP has come in for for significant criticism on a number of different dimensions from Diane Coyle and lots of lots of other people whom you know. Do you have any sense uh, of the extent to which GDP does not account for the positive uh, value of the double X economy? In other words, is it you know is it is it is it, is there some is there some ratio that you can point people to? Uh, as far as the the positive impact, yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes so that's the, so Amy Katecha has the question. I should have mentioned her name. I'm sorry, Amy. Yeah, um, I I do explain in the book that I'm not happy with using GDP either um, because I don't. I think it implies we should be chasing GDP and uh, exclusively. And I think that that is, as I say, I think that is the defining feature of patriarchal economics, and we should not go there. All right, but. But what 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 even though GDP in and of its own does have some benefits, I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that. But we should not only be looking at that. Now the problem is I'm trying to think right now if I've seen it. There are some the gender inequality index, the gender nutrition index, some some other things, and, I, and that's still in the works. But that you would be able to measure progress by those, but not probably impact. Um, and I would like to say that the way the GDP figure is being used is, is different from what I think most people say think. Within women's economic empowerment, early on, it was a problem because so many of the decision makers that you had to convince in order to get, for example, funding for programs, didn't care. They just frankly didn't care about social justice for women or anything, human trafficking, nothing. They didn't care about any of that. Uh, it's pretty hardcore. And, um, and so if you could articulate it in terms of growth, you got their attention. So that if you could quantify the benefits in terms of GDP, you had an audience and you had funding and you had all kinds of other stuff that you would not otherwise have. And, um, and I think at this point, it's, it's not really down to that, but we, because it really has become more and more accepted. 
but we're still using GDP as kind of a shorthand, if you will, for the magnitude and the direction. So, so for example, when you tell somebody that domestic domestic violence, which has its own costs in terms of human pain, damage to children, psychological, uh, you know, health risk. Um, you can attach a number to it in terms of hospital visits and police calls and things like that. And when you say to somebody, okay, so the magnitude of this problem is it's equal to 5% of GDP, the same amount you spend on primary education, and 30 times what we spend on international aid, people sit up and take notice. That's a huge number. Most people do not realize it's that big. And so it gives you a way of just saying, look, this is a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think we've fallen into that habit. And it's a little bit like, you know, it's become a, it's become a habit in the international business community to use dollars for everything, U.S. dollars or some form of dollars. And it's not because that's the best currency and it's or anything. It's because it's what everybody knows. Everybody can do it in their head kind of thing. Um, and so that's what and, and GDP is kind of the same way on this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's of a piece with your approach, which is not simply, as it were, to to cast this as a you know as a scandalous stain on on human progress but as an opportunity um uh, for the flourishing of humankind so looking in both of those directions i think is is kind of super important i mean not least not least to 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 uh create policy support um there are lots and lots and lots of questions um the the one of them alfonso diaz asks about um uh, essentially, a question about intersectionality: um, how how strongly you you might wish to make common cause with people whose lens is that of class or race or or or, or, or another form of identity, and whether whether, as it were, crowding in those perspectives is going to help this movement. Forgive uh, me, Alfonso, if I've misunderstood your question. It's long, and I've only skimmed it. Okay, uh, yeah, it, obviously, intersectionality is really. important. I have only dealt with intersectionality a little bit in the book, and that's partly because of the lack of data to do anything else. We're lucky to have it on women. Uh, and it's partly because I felt like focusing on gender was a legitimate thing to write a book about. And I will say this, that, that the, di the dialogue about the discourse about intersectionality is having one, I think, negative impact, and that is it's making it harder and harder to talk about gender, and gender is already hard to talk about. Um, that in the in the U.S., I just was reading a, a series that New York Magazine did on the economic impact of the pandemic on women. And this is massive and big, horrible thing. But all they can talk about is the impact on women of color. And that's because right now, you really can't be talking about women over here. And it's because the race thing has become so prominent. And it, rightly so. Um, but it, I think it's really important. I think a similar thing happened um, during um, like the 90s and early 2000s where people talked so much about cultural difference um, that you could not make comments about them being the same. It looked backwards and essentialist to say, oh, but look, this is the same as that over there. And that yeah. turns out to have been very bad for the movement. Uh, very bad. Okay. Interesting. Well, look, um, as you know, predictably, we've come to the we, we only had an hour and we've come to the end of our time. Um, I wanted just to mention one that on my screen in front of me, Anne-Marie Gutteridge um, um, left, a, left a comment, which I think you might appreciate, uh, Linda. She writes, I started work age 15 in 1974, the year of the Equal Pay Act. 
I'm still waiting. Um, I think that is a that that kind of says it all. So um, I'd like to bring our session to a conclusion by. Um, uh, first of all, and most obviously, thanking you, Linda, not only for this afternoon, uh, but for um, all your extraordinary work on the double X economy and other things, and for creating this movement. That uh, and the book, I really do commend the book to everyone, and in particular, the argument that Linda makes about this being, as it were, a movement with a series of uh, of interventions that we should all. Um, uh, push on. Um, I'd like also to thank the uh, audience. You are numerous. You are from all over the world. I hope I've done some kind of justice to your questions. And um, thank you, of course, to my colleagues in the Marshall Institute and at the um, LSE for joining us. Um, and uh, I hope to see you all again. Thank you, Linda, very much indeed. Thank you, Stephen. I enjoyed it. Goodbye, everyone.